0: My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor. Um, We actually have a team of pastors here. Uh, Just if you are new here, just to let you know, we have been very blessed. We have a team of four. Uh, Three of us are currently ordained pastors, one of us is in process. So uh, God has been good to us. And so I don't serve alone here, but as the lead pastor, I, um, in my role, uh, do probably a bulk of the preaching, but we also preach as a team we proclaim God's word from the pulpit as a team and we have guest guys come in as well last Sunday we got to hear from Warren Betcher, um, our regional leader so uh, we're, we're blessed to be before God's word and, and, and uh, for us as a church really we are formed by his word his word speaks and brings life and so uh, when we come together to worship this is part of worship we worship in song We worship in celebration of sacrament. Uh, We worship in the hearing and responding to God's Word. Uh, So we're in a series in Revelation. Uh, Just if you are a guest with us to let you know, we are not a church that's kind of fixated on Revelation and you're not going to see charts and all these details. Uh, But we are committed to the authority of God's Word. And this is a big book in the Bible. And um, I've been uh, avoiding it probably for a little while. And just have felt like, well, it's there, and it's, it's meant for blessing. Uh, so let's dig into it. And that's, that's the, behind the series. That's the, really the simple motivation. It's in the Word, so we need to give it attention. Uh, but also, there's the desire to recapture that blessing. I think that blessing has been lost uh, amid, amidst kind of the peculiar thoughts on Revelation that are out there. And, you know, if I say Revelation, right, you're probably thinking, you know, the... Mark of the Beast, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, or you know uh, Putin or whatever, you know, things like that. And really, that's not what the book's about. Uh, the book is about something much more important and much more practical and glorious. Um, tell you up front, I think the book is about learning to put our trust in the Lord amidst sufferings and trials of life, to trust in Him, to know that He's with us, and he's going to respond, He will make all things right. That's really what that, the book is about has specific application, of course, to the early church and the church in the very end times as well, but to us in this in-between time. Uh, So we're going to look at chapter 8, just verses 1-6 through I'll read. Uh, We'll we'll look at it. We'll dig into it. But just some questions to get you thinking in line with what we are going to read. Do you have one thing that you've been praying about for a while? One thing that you've been praying about for a while, whatever that is, that you haven't got an answer. What is that thing? You don't have to say it out loud, but what is that thing? And I imagine, perhaps for all of us, we have something in that category. What is that thing? How do you feel about it when you remember it? What are your thoughts around that? How do you feel about God in regards to that request? And it might just take a moment to kind of pause and think about that a little bit. What do you think about God when you remember that request that you've been asking for a while? What do you think you're supposed to feel and think? What does God's Word teach you? Instruct you? To be a Christian is to live in this world that's a broken world, but to live with the the things of God on your heart. A a realization that things are broken and they ought to be much better. To be a Christian is to live in this world and to go through suffering and to go through perhaps persecution depending on, on our context. And to have requests on our hearts before God and on our lips before God that aren't necessarily answered right away. The history of the church is a history of God's people asking God and asking God and waiting on God to answer. Sometimes a whole lifetime and more. And often for much of the history of the church and even today for much of the church in certain parts of the world, they're asking amidst persecution. They're asking God to work in contexts that are very difficult, where their lives are in danger, their livelihoods are in danger. The early church, which is the background to Revelation and beyond the very beginning of the early church, they waited for quite some time for God to answer. They lived amidst persecution for about 300 years, actually, from the time that the The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and really we look at that as the start of the church, the New Testament church. The New Testament people of God. From that time until persecution ended, it was about 300 years. So they prayed that God would work and and relieve the pressure, that God would give them strength to be faithful, um, that, that that God would vindicate His name and His people for 300 years. That's ten generations, guys. Roughly. Ten generations of asking God to come and to help. And today, again, most of or much of the world, a good part of the world, the Christian world, it lives through something similar. It's no wonder that Paul says in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. To live in this world is to live in a world that's groaning. For things to be made right. Guys. We live in this context and that's why God's given us the book of Revelation. He's given us this book that we would understand His perspective. We would understand what it looks like to live in Him and depend on Him and be faithful witnesses in a difficult world. And particularly, in the passage today, we're going to learn how prayer functions in that reality. The bottom line, I'll tell you ahead of time, is that we are to pray and not give up. Because God will answer and make all things right. So let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word and go from there. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Oh God, how we need this truth. And Lord, I'm sure for all of us today, and for some of us in particular today, we really need this Word. We're going through difficulty. We know what it is to suffer. There's prayer requests that are not just little prayer requests. They're big ones that have to do with with life and eternity and and deep suffering. And Lord, if not, Today, for all of us at some point in our lives, we will really need this Word. So I pray, Lord, help me to proclaim Your Word. Help me to serve Your precious people. And may You be the one who speaks to us. May we hear from You, be changed by You, receive power and, and fresh perspective and fresh faith today from You. We thank You, Lord, because these things are all in line with your, who You are and Your will, so we ask them together in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne." And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Just a little background before we dig into the, this actual section. Just If you haven't been with us, we've been going through this book, and uh, we've recently seen there's this scroll. The scroll really represents God's plans for making all things right. Making all things right means He brings judgment on evil and rescue to the faithful. That's what making things right looks like. And so this scroll represents His plan to make it all things right. And there's no one worthy to open the scroll until Jesus appears on the scene, because He's shed His blood, He's lived as a man, He's conquered, He's overcome, and now He reigns as a perfect man, as the God-man, and He is worthy to open the scroll and to unveil God's plans to make all all things right. And so there are seven wax seals on the side of the scroll that would have been common in that day, and as as Jesus takes off each seal, there's a vision that John experiences of a, a hint at the plans that he has. And so we've looked at that. Typically, uh, there are seven seals. There's seven trumpets we're going to see. There's seven bulls. And you'll see they're actually very parallel. The same sorts of things happen each time. Um, And there'll be four things that have to do with judgment on the earth, and then three things that kind of are mixed have to do with God's people and God's plan. So here we are at the seventh seal in chapter 8. This seal is open. Jesus removes this seventh seal and just to look at the passage, if you could keep the verse up there so people can look at that verse if they don't have it in their hands. Um, verses, uh, I want verses 1-4, through four, I think, if you can. Um, and the first point, the prayers of the saints. If you just look at that passage, you'll see that there's a lot there about incense being offered, right? There's, there's incense being offered. This is a picture of the temple in Jerusalem, by the way. The, the temple in Jerusalem is made after the pattern of heaven. So it's, it, there's a connection there. And so there's incense being offered. That was part of what went on at the temple. There was incense regularly offered. What is incense? Uh, incense is, is it's a combination of, of things that are kind of perfumed and so forth. You burn and it smokes and it releases a perfume. So it, it's part of the temple worship. So that's what's going on here. You see that. Um, but you see prayer happening as well, right? So there's the incense offered with the prayers of the saints. Now, earlier in chapter 7, I think it, I think it was chapter 7, There is the, uh, under the fifth seal, actually chapter six, there's the fifth seal is opened and it shows the saints under the altar saying, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, till you avenge our deaths? These are saints that have been killed for their faith. They've lived in the evil world. They've paid the the highest price, really, as saints, giving their lives for their faith. And they're, Lord, how long? When are you going to make this right? When are you going to make all things right? So they're praying as well. So there's, just to give you the background of prayer that's going on, we see prayer happening here. But you may wonder what's verse 1 about? When the seal gets open, it says when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then it goes on to this incense and prayer thing. What's going on there? Um, There are actually a lot of ideas about the silence in heaven. All sorts of theories. I won't get into all of them. But I think a a key thing, a clue to what the silence means is the fact that the silence goes on for about half an hour. Do you notice that? About a half an hour. Now when you read Revelation, when you see numbers in Revelation, remember they are symbolic. They are more about representing something than, than counting something. So they're, they're there for a reason. It's just not There don't just happen to be 144,000 saints. That, that number 144,000 represents something. We, talked about that last week or two weeks ago. Uh, So it says about a half an hour. It doesn't say 30 minutes. It doesn't say exactly a half an hour. It it doesn't just say there was silence and not say. It says about a half an hour. That's curious, isn't it? So where do you find a connection with something that's about a half an hour? Anywhere? Well, a clue is it seems that the context is about prayer and incense, right? That's the context, so if verse one's connected to verse 2 and following, maybe that silence for half an hour, about a half an hour, has to do with prayer. Well, um, let's just kind of spend a little bit of time looking into this whole thing of burning incense. So they would have burned incense in the temple. The temple uh, was the place on earth where people, the God's people came to worship Him. He made His presence known there in the temple. The temple had outer courts. It was quite a magnificent complex. Then there was the temple building itself. And in that building, there, were, there was an, uh, inner, an outer room and then an inner room. That outer room is called the holy place. And then the inner room was a cubicle room called the holy of holies. The very holiest place. And that was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was. That was the place where it was represented as God God's very presence dwelling there in the Holy of Holies. They only went in like once a year to that place. But in the outer room, there was this place there were other things, other tables arranged. And there was a, an altar there. A place where, uh, where you could basically start a, a fire. It was a little fire thing. And on top of it, you would burn incense. That's in the, the holy place. Uh, and it talks about that in Scripture. They were instructed in this. That you can show the verse. Levit- Leviticus 16. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. That's instruction early on about how they were to use incense. So they would, when they offered sacrifices, a priest would go in and burn this incense, and they would fill the Holy of Holies. The, The altar for the incense was right near the curtain for the Holy of Holies. So it would fill. The presence of God, basically, as they offered sacrifices. So the smoke of the sacrifice, really, and the smoke of the incense would be blended together before the throne. That's what's going on. You may know the story about uh, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. You guys know that story? He was a priest, and he was selected to go in and to burn incense. And he went in to burn incense, and he met the angel Gabriel who told him about John. And there's a story behind that. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 1. It says, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And it says in verse 10, and the whole multitude, so Luke one 19 through 9-10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Um, one other connection, just to see here. Psalm 141-2. There's a connection between the incense being burned and the prayers of the saints. So we see that with Zechariah. People are praying outside while he's in offering the incense. And then David himself says, Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and then lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. So i give you all that imagery just so you would see incense is connected to prayer and to worship. And the sacrifice and, and the incense of prayer were kind of combined before the throne. That's helpful for understanding Revelation. But in particular, one fact about Offering incense is really helpful. How much time do you think it took for the priest to go in, set up the incense, and burn it, and then come back out? Any guesses? You can say it out loud. About a half an hour, exactly. It was about a half an hour. And while it was offered, the people were outside. What were they doing while he went in? They were praying. They were praying. So it was a special time that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with during their worship. Certainly at Yom Kippur they did it, the, the Day of Atonement. But also uh, throughout the year, as incense was offered. It was a regular part of their worship. It was their kind of their prayer time. And so when John says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour for a Jewish believer, and by the way, a God-fearing uh, Gentile believer attending the synagogue, being familiar with the stories and, and the life, would, they would have said, oh, Just like at the temple during prayer. So that's what's going on here, guys. That's what this verse 1 is about. And this is how it's connected. This is about prayer coming before the throne. This is about incense being offered in prayer. The prayer of God's people coming before the throne. There's silence during that time. They're praying as the priest goes in and offers it. Now this is all a picture for John and for us and for God's people. Um, of reality, spiritual realities, but a picture for us to, to recognize how worship happens and what God values in worship and how God responds. It's, it's interesting. There's an aspect of this silence uh, that communicates that God Himself is listening. So God's people are coming before the throne and they're praying. And the incense of their prayers are, are wafting into the Holy of Holies. The incense of God's people is coming before God. And God Himself, the eternal, infinite One, who's holy and glorious and and has no need of anybody else, is completely perfect and satisfied by Himself, in His great mercy and wisdom and love, listens for about a half hour as those prayers are offered. He's attentive to His people. He's listening to them. And and the context, we know that part of the prayers um, are prayers of God, please make things right. Please make things right because this letter is written to a church that's persecuted. We've spent time looking at the seven churches, right? And these churches were living in a world where, where there was difficulty, where there was persecution, where life was hard, where things were difficult. And so they're praying, Lord, make things right. And, and that making things right is, Lord, would You deal with those who hate You and hate us? And Lord, would You bring Your Kingdom? So they're praying that. They, they lived in this context where, where life was difficult. We've talked about this before. The, the context. Um, the, the early church came out of the Jewish synagogue. Mainly. That's where Paul and, and others went to share the good news. Why did they go there? Well, the priority of evangelizing the Jews, um, but also reaching people who were ready to hear. The attendees at the synagogues uh, were Jewish people um, who knew the Scriptures and were brought up in that and who were looking for a Messiah. And they were what's called God-fearing Gentiles. So there were a large group of people that they were Gentiles. They were not converts to Judaism. But they believed. They believed in God and they respected the Scriptures. And they attended the synagogue. They didn't convert all the way, but they attended regularly. And when... Apostles and others came into these places. They shared the good news and many Jewish people believed and became believers. And the God-fearing Gentiles in larger proportion became believers. And that, that's what formed the early church. And they were integrated with the synagogue whenever they could. They did not separate themselves. Because they saw themselves as fulfilled Jews, really. They had come to understand who the Messiah is. And as God-fearing Gentiles, they had recognized, oh, this is what it's all about. And I don't need to... Come under the Jewish uh, laws and so forth, the Mosaic laws. And so the the early church came out of the synagogue. But around this time, um, what had happened, what was happening, and I would understand it to be around the time of Nero's persecution, 60 AD, some would say a little later, but regardless, around this time, what was happening was the Jewish people who were not believers in Yeshua, the Messiah, were saying, You're not Jewish and you can't attend the synagogue anymore. And that was terrible for them. Because under Roman rule, you had to every Roman had to worship the Roman gods. You had to worship the emperor. You had to comply with the culture. And if you didn't, you were seen as a traitor. It wasn't just like we would be like well, you know, we have freedom of conscience to a degree, right? Um, where you're like, well, they believe something different, that's okay. No. And th- those days, you either worshipped the emperor or you were a traitor, and traitors were put to death. And so everything was built around worshipping the emperor, worshipping the gods, all the, the jobs that you got were tried in, uh, tied into trade guilds. And these guilds had, um, had deities that were representative of the trade guild, and you would worship a deity with your guild, with your union, essentially. So, so when you were put out of the synagogue, the synagogue was the one exception the Roman government allowed. If you were Jewish, you were allowed to worship as a Jew in the synagogue. And, and your loyalty to the emperor was shown by paying taxes to the temple. And the temple leaders were instructed to pray for the emperor. So that's kind of how they got around that. So you still were praying for the emperor, but you weren't offering worship to the emperor. So there was an exception. And you, if you were a convert to Jesus as Messiah, as a Jew or God-fearing Gentile, you were safe. Under the old rule. But now, when the the Jewish establishment who didn't believe in Yeshua and Jesus said, You're not Jewish, you were put out of the synagogue and you were left on your own. You were vulnerable in every way. The majority of the persecution at first came from the Jewish believers, the unbelievers, the Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus. But then when you were put out, you started to be persecuted by the Roman system as well. That's what's going on with the seven churches. They're living in that reality. It's a struggle. It's difficult. And this book, this revelation is given to John to them. Now, they are representative churches. This would have been the case for the whole Roman Empire. The early church at at this point was pretty much contained within the Roman Empire. All that to kind of help us reflect on what is being taught. How chapter 8, verse 1 is to impact that early audience. It's really hard to be a Christian. It's really difficult. And you can feel really alone and really small. And Revelation 8.1 is saying your prayers come before God Himself and He listens. Your prayers to make all things right are attentively listened to by God Himself. They are a central and major part of your worship before the throne. Your prayers to make all things right. Guys, it's difficult to live in this world. We we have it easy compared to the early church. We have it easy compared to many. It's difficult to live in this world and and we know that difficulty. We, We deal with it all the time. And let me tell you quite frankly, you cannot get by without prayer. This verse, this section of Revelation is given for the early church, those seven churches and all the churches really, to have the equipment, to have the mindset, to have the ability to get through a difficult world. To be able to remain faithful. So prayer is so important. Prayer is so important for the church, for us, to know how to get through life. God hears us. And we need to remember that. And we need to pour out our hearts. And God answers our prayers. He does indeed. And He answers on His time scale. Now there are times when we pray. We come before Him and the incense goes before the throne room and there's an answer. Boom! There are times like that and how we love those times. I was thinking about some illustrations. I I know a couple. Uh, They were part of uh, the Alpha program. Alpha program is an outreach program to help people understand the truths of Christianity and kind of reacquaint or be introduced to those truths. Um, there's a meal; it's a, it's a good time. We've run it here, but there was this couple, Bob and Marianne. They came to Alpha, and they didn't know Jesus. They came and they listened. They heard the truths about Christ. They heard these wonderful truths about who He is and what He's done and what He offers. and And throughout the course, they, at one point, they started to teach about healing that God heals. That he heals sickness. Well, Mary Ann happened to have tumors in her neck. She had half of her thyroid uh, was affected. She had, I think, two or three tumors and was suffering through that. And so during the course, she uh, that came forward, they prayed for her. And boom, like that. God healed her. The tumors were gone. She was healed of that, of that cancer and then put her faith in Jesus. Bob and Mary Ann, they're, they're friends of mine. Real story. Healed like that. Boom. But there are times when God's time scale is not like that. We certainly all have stories where it's immediate, but there's times often where it takes a while. It can take a long time. It can take more than a lifetime. Just think of, of Israel in Egypt. They were in Egypt how many years? About 400, right? And about half of that time, they were under oppressive rulers. So 200 years. They're being oppressed, and they're crying out, God of our fathers, Make this right. And in time, God does in a powerful way. I think, of, I think of the believers and the people who lived under historic race-based slavery in the West. That went on about 400 years. Prayers of believers living under oppression. Terrible oppression. Saying, Lord, how long? How long praying that God would make it right? And He did in time. If you are live long enough, you have things that you're waiting for, you're asking for. I know in our church, we have people with chronic sickness. Chronic struggles that are not just a day or a month, but years and decades and even a lifetime. We've seen people healed from cancer in an instant. Miraculously, we've seen people healed from cancer through the blessing of medicine. And we've seen people die from cancer. We don't have control over when and how God answers our prayers. But we know from Revelation and from Scripture that He indeed hears us. And He answers our prayers. He listens and He will answer in His time. Revelation, the entire book in this particular section, exhorts us to pray and pray and never give up. Because He hears us and He will answer. Prayer itself actually has power in itself. Before there's ever any answer, prayer has an answer. Philippians 4, if you could put that verse up. Apostle Paul teaches us this truth. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it great to have this teaching? It's not just about the answer to prayer, that whatever you might be asking for, the thing that you might be requesting, it isn't that the peace comes only when that happens, right? It's only when you get answered that you'll have peace. No, it's when you pray, when you ask. There's an answer right away. There's the blessing of of peace from God and, and of protection. From anxiety and protection from confusion. It's, it's peace. It's not just general peace either. This is not just like, this isn't saying, you know, prayer just has a psychological, physiological effect. Somehow when we unburden our hearts, we just feel better. That might be true, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But this is saying it, it's not the piece of physiology or the piece of psychology. It's the peace of God. From God Himself. God grants. Us, peace when we pray. There's an effect immediately that comes. Sometimes we're not receiving all of it, but there's an effect and a grace right away. For peace, peace as we pray. It makes a difference in our lives just by asking, and of course, God answers, and sometimes immediately in His time, regardless of His timing, He's listening. There's silence in heaven for a half an hour as prayers are offered, as incense is offered up. He's listening. He's taking it in. He's going to respond as well. We'll get there in the section. Guys, we need to pray. You need to pray. You cannot get through life through the trials and temptations, the sufferings and sorrows, the distractions and disappointments of life without prayer. You need to pray. You need to ask God. You need to lift these things before the Lord. We need to pray. It's a precious and important gift. It's, it's, a, I think, probably the most powerful and effective thing we can do. It's interesting, when the seventh seal gets opened, this is the seventh seal. This is kind of the climax of the seals, right? This is the high point. After all these things, this is, the, this is where things are going to be made right. They're going to be dealt with here. And the seventh seal gets opened and you might expect you know it's going to reveal the church at work in the world the church with just all it shows the church with grand programs of social justice dealing with the the wrongs and injustices and evils of the world helping the poor righting wrongs it, it, the seventh seal gets open and that's what it reveals or it's the church evangelizing sharing the good news throughout the world and and people through programs and proclamation coming to Jesus all oh, these are all good things The seventh seal gets opened. It doesn't show those things. Those things that we often think are the most important thing that we can do. It shows the church at prayer. It shows the church at prayer. There's silence. There's prayer. There's incense being offered up to heaven. The most important and powerful thing we can do is to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray. To come before the Lord. We need to pour out our hearts to, to live this life. We must do these things. And 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 it is just so important. And we are vulnerable. We need the Lord. We need his answers. And and I think this is an encouragement. It's a reminder. I think it's a correction to us too. Because we need to pray. And we don't necessarily pray like we ought we run around and do other things. Now, those other things that might need to be done. But they're not the most important thing. I think prayer is probably the most important ministry of our church. There are other things that are very important. The priority of the good news of Christ and so forth. But as far as ministry, as far as things we do, probably number one, to pray. And I shudder to think of what a prayerless church would be subject to. We are weak and we need the Lord. Life is hard. Guys, I, I pace up and down these aisles about every day because I know how vulnerable we are. And I know how vulnerable I am. I pace up and down these aisles praying and asking the Lord for help for me personally, for you, for our church, for the purposes of God in Haverhill because I know how much we need Him. I can't deal with being a pastor. I can't. I'm honest. To be honest with you, I can't deal with it. There's a burden that I am called to carry that's beyond me, and that's why I pray. That's why I pace up and down. Lord, help me. Help us. I can't even deal with my own life, so I pray, have lots to pray for myself, but I also don't want to presume on any of our bright ideas or our hard work to accomplish anything apart from God. We need God. We need to pray. It is so important. So so let's be a church that prays. Let's be a church that prays as individuals. Let's be a church that prays as couples. Let's be a church that prays as families. Let's be a church that prays as community groups. Let's not fail to pack out our church for corporate prayer and haver wide prayer. Honestly, I've been disappointed and I don't want to make you feel guilty. I don't I don't want to motivate you by guilt. And I don't, it's not about filling seats. But we've had very low turnout for these items. And I know there's reasons, and I expect you to exercise discernment in what you prioritize. And there's times you can't be there. So hear all that, right? For those of you who know me, I think you know I'm sincere. But the other side of it is I just ask myself, are we presuming on things? Or do we know how vulnerable we are? Do we know how hard life is and how much we need the Lord? And is that being shown by coming together to pray? And do we know how much Haverhill and greater Haveral needs Jesus? And is that shown by coming together with other churches, asking God to work in this area? Guys, we need to pray. There's nothing ministry-wise more important. There's nothing more powerful. God listens when we pray. There's silence. There's listening. And there's response. We see a picture of that here in Revelation chapter 8. The response of God. How He answers in great power. He listens. Those prayers are offered. If you could put the verse back up just to revisit it. Or on the second point, the faithful responder. He listens to those prayers. The incense is offered. The prayers come up before the Lord. There's silence. And then he responds. He responds here. Um, And he responds in judgment. He comes to make all things right. He comes to respond and answer the prayers of his saints. And in the picture here, uh, we see as we look, there's seven angels with seven trumpets. They're, they're going to be blown. These trumpets are going to be blown and that's part of God's answer. So, we're cycling from the seven seals to the seven trumpets. They're very connected. But the, the, the picture here is God responds to the prayers of His people. And there's going to be these seven trumpets of judgment. Trumpets in Scripture are used to announce things. They're announcing things like military actions and victories, celebrations, um, and so forth. And so, these trumpets really encompass all of that. We'll, we'll visit the trumpets next Sunday. But notice... Who's blowing on the seven trumpets? The seven angels who stand before the throne. Where have we seen the seven angels who stand before the throne? Chapter 1. There's the seven angels. Jesus walks among the seven lampstands and there's seven angels. And those seven angels are connected to seven churches. So think about it for a minute. Um. These angels are actually those seven angels of the churches, or there could be the seven archangels who were part of the intercession of God's people understood in Jewish history and so forth. Either way, it's the same function. These seven angels are from those seven churches. God is responding in prayer. Those seven angels as representative of those seven churches are blowing the trumpets. And God is shaking the earth. The connection that I think it's important to get. These are seven angels from seven churches that by and large saw themselves as insignificant in the world. Persecuted, ostracized, weak. And yet, when they pray, the heavens respond and the earth shakes. The whole culture is affected. Everything is affected by these angels blowing their trumpets. These are angels from these churches blowing the trumpets. So there's a connection between these little churches that are praying and seeking the Lord for Him to make things right, and what happens in the grand scale of the whole universe. That's the connection here. That's what would have been understood, I believe, by the early churches as they heard this. Wow! We feel so insignificant left to ourselves, but when we pray, The heavens respond and the earth shakes. God does things in the earth. He brings about His plan. He answers. He makes things right. Do you see that? Do you see that connection? I think that's so important to get. I think it's so important to get in prayer. To be encouraged to keep on praying and not giving up because as God responds, things happen in the heavenlies that change the earth for good permanently. The most powerful Entity in Greater Haverhill is the church in Greater Haverhill. The collective church. Our church is part of the church in this area. All faithful churches believe in Christ as the God-man, died for sin, risen again. The church is the most powerful entity because even though we might be small, and a minority, when we pray, God Himself hears and God acts. In ways that can transform our whole culture and our whole land. So guys, you want to see change happen in hail for good? Do you want to see lives rescued from darkness and destruction? Do you want to see an answer for the opioid epidemic or the crime or the broken families around us? then do something do the most powerful thing you can do in regards to this. Pray and ask God to work. Here in Revelation 8, we have the church praying and asking God to work, and he comes and he brings these final judgments. He comes to bring justice. He comes to bring rescue and salvation. He comes to bring the, the new creation. And we see here in this passage that, that the angel, there's another angel who comes and he grabs some coals from the altar. The altar, there's the, probably just one altar there, but the, there's the incense altar and the altar of sacrifice probably combined here. Grabs coals from that altar with his incense censer and hurls them to the earth. And that represents the judgments. That represents God working in power. There's peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And this is common in Scripture when it, when it is talking about the powerful presence and judgment of God. So in Sinai, in Exodus, we see it. Psalm 18, David prays for deliverance and for God to rout his enemies, and, and he uses this imagery to speak of God coming with lightning and thunder and, and routing the enemies. We see it throughout Revelation, chapter 11, chapter 16, and repeated over and over again. As God responds, He brings His mighty power. He brings His judgments. He brings His rescue. And it's pictured as thunder and rumblings and lightning and earthquake. God answers in great power the prayers of His saints here in Revelation. He will judge all evil. He will rescue those who have run to Jesus for mercy and grace. Side point here. Left to ourselves. We cannot expect salvation, but judgment. Left to ourselves, we are to be rightly judged by a good and holy God. God knows everything about us. He knows every detail of our lives. And I think if we're really honest with our own lives and we look at ourselves, we we will recognize that, you know what, I have no ability to stand before a holy and good God because I'm not good. Even mixed in with my very best ambitions are always these twisted things, and at times I'm just purely wanting something bad. And often the only reason I don't act on those things is because I'm I'm inhibited by knowing the punishment that's awaiting me if I do it. That's the reality of mankind. That's our reality. We don't like to face it. We don't like to deal with it. We like to create kind of uh, illusions about the goodness of mankind, and it just history does not bear it out. Let me give you a little story of maybe how an idea of how that would bear itself out in your own life. Imagine if we could insert a chip into your brain that would record every thought that you have. Everything you feel, every intention, all those things you think through, what goes on in your mind when you're behind that slow driver, what goes on in your mind when you're at work and you're that person who's harassed you all the time, is harassing you, what goes on in your mind, in all the other situations, it would be recorded by the chip, and then next Sunday, we're going to just show it right here, all the things this past week that have gone on. Anyone want to be here for, for that? Not me. That's just the reality, right guys? That, that's what's in us. And so left to ourselves, God would have to be, would have to be good and just to respond and, and to bring right consequences on those sorts of intentions and actions. So, as we read through Revelation, it's not like, God, go get them. It's like, God, why don't you go get me? Well, there's good news. That's why, right? Because left to ourselves, yes, we should be subject to this sort of judgment, but Jesus has not left us to ourselves. He came and He entered our mess. He came and lived life among us. He came and lived among this world that is so broken. And He took on Himself our sin. He bore in His body on the cross our sin. And He paid the punishment Himself. He took God's judgment for our sin on Himself. This amazing exchange that comes simply through faith. You don't have to figure your life out before you receive this. You don't have to get things right before this is available to you. It's available right now. It's available to all and any who would recognize their need for it. And all it takes is you turning away from yourself and from what you know is evil and turning to Jesus. Putting your faith in Him. And saying, Jesus, forgive me. Thank You for dying for my sins. Just responding to that in faith. Hmm. Confessing with your mouth. If you've done that, by the way, and believed and you're not yet be baptized, would love to baptize you. The baptism is a picture and a celebration. Uh, of that new life. But it's simply through faith. It's simply through trusting in Him and there's this amazing thing that happens. Jesus gets credited with all your wrong and all your, all your sins. All the things you've done and, by the way, the things you've failed to do. He gets credited with those through faith and you get credited with His goodness. So God looks at you through faith and says, you look just like Jesus. Receive. I receive you. Come, my son and daughter, live in me. That's the good news. And, and so through that simple faith, we are saved from the just wrath to come. No matter what it might be. We might have been a persecutor even. The Apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church. He, he is one of the ones that the church is praying about. Lord, make things right with this guy who's trying to destroy your church. God rescues Paul. And makes Paul a major leader in the church. So no matter who we might be, there is mercy and grace in Christ. And He calls us to to live in Him. To live in trusting in Him. To live in this mercy that we have. To walk with Him. If the band could come up as we prepare to close. Transition. We pray and we seek for God to make all things right. Prayer is how we get through this life, guys. Prayers is something that needs to be central. We need to pray. Guys, you need to pray. We need to pray together. God is going to answer our prayers. There'll be short term answers, there'll be a long term answer, and Revelation gives us a picture of it. It's glorious. The answer, the long term answer, is so fantastic that when you get there, you're going to say all that suffering. All those difficulties are nothing compared with what I know now. They're nothing at all compared to what I experience now in the presence of God. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Almost, only limitless enjoyment. The discovery of the glory of God in all things unbounded by sin or time forever with Him and His precious people. It's going to just be so amazing. We can't even begin to grasp it. Such is the ultimate answer to our prayers. We pray because God listens. We pray because life's hard. We pray because God answers us. Both short term and long term. Let me pray for us and perhaps take a moment to reflect on these things and I'll let Michael, Mike lead us uh, in communion and response. Lord,